You're listening to Conservation Connection. Presented by Last Chance Endeavors. I'm Chance. I'm Sarah Catherine. We're a husband and wife team running a wildlife education nonprofit focused on connecting students to their environment. Each week, here on Conservation Connection, we do just that by introducing you to the groundbreaking science and conservation work that's happening every day across the globe. We talk to professionals working to protect our planet and ask them about their career, their current projects, their wild and crazy stories from the field, and everything in between. This episode is a collaboration with the Sun Valley Forum in Sun Valley, Idaho, and was made possible through a generous donation by the Nancy P. and Richard K. Robbins Family Foundation. The Sun Valley Forum is an intergenerational meeting of forward-thinking professionals that come from a diverse range of disciplines. These experts are on the cutting edge of what's happening in the fight for our future, and they've all come together at the Sun Valley Forum to share ideas and collaborate on solutions for a greener tomorrow. Let's get to the show. Alrighty, guys, welcome to another episode of Conservation Connection. We're here in Idaho at the Sun Valley Forum, and I'm very excited. I've been waiting all conference to get this interview. We're here with Mark Brand. He is a chef. He's an activist. He's a social impact entrepreneur. He's doing a bunch of really cool stuff, and we're about to have a really cool conversation. Yeah, welcome to the show. Super happy to be here. Yeah, excited to meet you both, and it's been a great couple days so far. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining us. And let's just dive into, I think you're the first chef we've had on the show. So what made you want to get involved as a chef with Sun Valley, with working like specifically towards the environment, helping the environment, making an impact? Where did that journey begin? Yeah, sure. And I, I mean, I'm not surprised I'm the first one that you've had on the show. We're, <laughs> we are reclusive beasts. We choose the kitchen because we don't choose people. There's <laughs> a reason it's called back of house. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm quite the anomaly there. I started cooking when I was nine and I've done every position in service period. I spent um, eight or nine years as a DJ professionally. I've done all sorts of things, but all with the centering point of building community and holding space. That's always been what it's about. And when you're holding space and building community, the topics of the day, if you built the right infrastructure and you built the right places and brick and mortars are my focus, I don't build digital communities as much as I build physical ones. Um, you get to hear about everything. And so I've been in the discussion, of course, from a fiscal standpoint in purchasing uh, since I was in my teenage years of like, what does it cost to bring something? If I'm using Italian flour at a pizza place, if I want to use triple O, what's that look like? Also, what's the cost? Why is it so expensive? And you right. start to ask those questions early. Like, why is this bag of flour $100 and that one's four? Right, yeah. Right? And especially as you're trying to get the best quality product you can out on plates for the most cost-effective way that you can do it because your margins are so thin in the food industry so often that like you have to really make informed decisions about what you're bringing into your kitchen. Definitely. And you know the, the talk I did today was based around waste and sustainability around waste or what I will call leftovers um, going forward in this conversation. Like the leftover food portion as chefs and cooks and as purveyors of venues there's no such thing. You just don't have that. Like the ends of vegetables become stocks and soups and sauces and you don't waste anything. You boil the bone down to get all right. the good meat and the marrow out of it. And that is your daily soup special. Like when you go into a restaurant, you see the daily board, 
that's yesterday's board becoming today's great special <laughs> that you're excited about because it's on special. Right. And that should be celebrated. You know that there's I this, so. this complete use of all ingredients. There's no wastage. There's nothing being thrown out. And that's, that is absolutely something to be celebrated and raised up. For sure. Particularly when in the US, since we're here today, 150,000 tons are wasted every 24 hours. Is that looking at industrial? Is that looking at everything? Household? This is like grocery product waste and consumer waste. That's insane. Yeah, this isn't even looking at the whole system, right? And you've got 39 million at a low average, um, desperately food insecure Americans. And so as cooks, like just the analogy I just used, that's what we do. That's what we do with the Better Life Foundation is we take that quote unquote leftovers and make leftovers for people who are food insecure. In part, we do about 2,300 meals a day right now. And 300 of those are, are leftovers, and we started that during the pandemic. And so if we can do that with two people on an electric tricycle and help predominantly women and children fleeing violence in a shelter, why isn't every single kitchen converting that and doing that same work? And if it was, maybe we'd have 38 million less hungry people. Yeah, absolutely. So what was – I mean, there had to be a something that took you from like, hey, we should do something about this, like, hey, I've got – a tricycle. Let's go get this food into the mouths of people that need it. What was the spark that ignited that fire? Sure. So I work uh, on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, and Snohomish peoples, otherwise known as the downtown east side of Vancouver, one of the most marginalized areas on the planet. So you think about Vancouver, you have mountains and the Olympics, and it's beautiful, and David Suzuki and the Eagles and the whole thing. Yeah, it's that's all true. But for a five-block radius, there are 30,000-plus impacted people who have deep mental health issues, who are addicted to opioids, who are struggling with homelessness, um, who are street-entrenched or in and out of the shelter system, who come from abuse, et cetera, in the center of the city. And everybody sort of drives around it and everything's built around that. I opened businesses there for six years straight. And so fine dining restaurant, ramen house, sushi restaurant, live music venue, gallery, all scratch-made, no funders. And living in that community for the last now 17 years, experiencing it in those first six, it's like this, I have a skill set that can be useful here. Right. And also, I always say if the community's unwell, we're all unwell. That's just period. We talk about the mycelium under the ground. We have the same mycelial network. We're connected to it. We're made of the same thing. So to think that you could be there and not by osmosis, be in deep pain. Is, is how we delude ourselves. It's where addiction comes in. It's where all kinds of things come in. We're feeling the pain yeah. cumulatively. We just are. And so I started my first social impact business in 2011 called Save on Meats. It was a historic butcher shop, 21,000 square feet. And I took it and hacked it into a social impact incubator before I even knew what that meant. And we <laughs> So what does that mean? While we're here, tell me, what do you mean by social impact incubator? Sure. Incubator? So I wanted to incubate businesses or foster businesses and help give them tools um, to become successful businesses with a hard bent for social impact. That meaning like, can we get greens into the communities that really need them? Can we teach kids in school and plant farms where soccer fields aren't being used? Those kinds of ideas are ones that I would foster and support by giving people free office space, mentorship, access to each other, access to a kitchen to prototype and try out new products. And that's always been really important to me. Um, but we were about 10 years too early. So we started this 21,000 square foot space and it was nose to tail butchery, a diner, the butcher, all of those things. Um, and it was just, yeah, far too early. And so you don't know what you don't know. And I'd been on this crazy success streak. Like everything I opened was going incredibly well, most award-winning restaurants, like all of it. Wow. So you're like, okay, I can do this too. Yeah. 
tackle society's biggest problem? <laughs> Why not? No problem. Nobody's <laughs> going to be hungry. Walk right into it. I got this dog. Did you, did you see my ramen recipe? I got this. Um, and did not have it in any way and made, uh, you know, I think being kind to myself at this point, made an ass of myself, but didn't quit. And, and stuck with it and said a lot of stupid things and burnt a lot of bridges without even knowing that they existed. Just in my own language, in my own delivery, and the way I was holding space uh, came from a very traditional capitalist, like, cool guy mentality. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know that. Like, I didn't know what gentrification meant. I didn't even know what that word meant. And I'd been doing it for six straight years. Uh, but as soon as I moved into the social sector and picked up a megaphone, everybody knew exactly what I'd been doing. And uh, it turned on me pretty quick. Best lesson of my life, best decision I ever made. And I think if there was more space for all of us to get messy, uh, we'd be in a much better position than we are now. Because how else are you going to learn, right? Period. Is doing it, doing it wrong, being told what you did wrong, picking yourself up from that and doing it better second time around. You got it. Yeah. So after about a year of that, I realized I didn't care about anything else at all. I was just like, this is the only thing that's made me happy since playing music or I can sort of remember. Uh, so doubled down on it. It was making zero money. It was two million bucks in. No sign of like ever making it make sense and didn't care whatsoever. It's like, this is what matters. Uh, closed and sold all the businesses that couldn't pivot. Started to work as a B Corp. Became the first certified B Corp restaurant in Canada. Uh, and all of our other businesses followed suit in a way of how can we be net positive and really high net positive to our community, to the planet to the narrative, to advocacy. Uh, and that's what's fueled me every day since. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I like it. It's a great bunch of jobs. I mean, you haven't stopped smiling since you sat down here. So you clearly <laughs> must like what you do. I'm ex- I mean, you two are also great hosts. So I'm excited <laughs> oh. to be here with you. But yes, I also like what I do uh, a lot. I mean, I've been at the Sun Valley Forum here. This is my fifth year, I think. Cooking, working with kids, working with the local community, bringing our archetypes here. Speaking on stage amongst the brightest minds, period, and being able to bring this lens. I just did that a couple hours ago, so I'm still really hyped from that. And when I say like hype from it, I'm like 86,522 people died since we started this of hunger. You know, those tonnage of waste, I share that. Right. And this is how many Americans are starving. And I'm, I'm smiling telling you this because – when you give this kind of information to powerful people and they have cocktail notes, they do stuff with it. Right. They're able to make change happen. So I'm jacked every time I get a microphone in these rooms and instead of pointing fingers, you know, like, by the way, this is your fault. It's like, no, no, no. This is this is the scenario. You probably did not know this. Um, and I know that you're willing participants in change because you wouldn't be here. Right. So you have an opportunity to do this, period. Yeah. And so I get pretty excited. Yeah, Absolutely. So you clearly haven't been unsuccessful since continuously since you started. You've learned, you've pivoted, you've changed. So in the past few years, what has the success looked like? What has the change looked like that you've seen, um, especially during the pandemic? I'm sure that made a huge difference as well. I think the greatest compliment to any worker and being part of any movement like Black Panthers were doing breakfast programs like the program I do, right? This is None of this is new. None of the stuff that I'm doing is like revolutionary. It's continuing. I stand on the shoulders of people who are doing this before me that people may not know about. I know about them. And so when I walk into rooms with young advocates who are creating businesses, et cetera, and they tell me 
what they do by telling me what I do, unbeknownst to them, that's that's it. Like that's what's changed the most, particularly in the last three years. But over the last decade, if I had come in this room and said food sovereignty, you'd be like, do you mean the plots of land outside feudal England? Like you have no <laughs> idea what I'm talking about. No idea. Right. And so the vernacular being normalized and people knowing, no, it's not a food desert. It's food apartheid. This is racial. It has always been racial. When I see a 12-year-old spit that back to me, I'm like, this is this is like goosebumps right now. You guys can see like, <laughs> I can on my fingers. Like that's the work because after we're long gone, it's not my role to finish the job. It's my role to continue to help people see how to do the job better, faster, cleaner, and who not to work with and who absolutely to work with. And I think the last three years also showed me that I had become – part of the chasing the bag, right? I was chasing the bigger checks from corporate and from other entities whose approval I was looking for. And what a toxic relationship that is. Yeah. Like that's just so you know that there's a CEO and a CMO cycle of three years max and they're going to try and do something new and you're going to be disposable. Yet you're like, but this could do all, we could do all the work here. If you just stroked a check that's like office cleaning for you at one of your buildings. Right. Yeah. You would not notice. It would be a blip. And it's not your money. Right. Whoever I'm talking to, this isn't yours. Like, let's do it. And so I had one of those relationships and I was like, this is it. We're good forever. We got a 20-year handshake deal. And it was more like 20 months. And then KPIs changed. And that was – it's so exceptional what the ego will do because I'm aware of this. But I was in a full cage with a tiger and I was like, it'll never bite me. <laughs> it's never going to bite never me. It's never going to turn on yeah, me. Siegfried and Roy, sure, but me, nah. And it did. It bit me really badly in the middle of the pandemic. And I was at the precipice of disappointing 2,500 people who are deeply food insecure and who are expecting something. And I rallied back to the community that matters, which are people who I just reached out and was like, hey, have you got any exterior funds and like those pots of granting that we could cobble some stuff together? And people were so excited. They're like, are you asking us to be involved and to help? And they're the real people doing real work, not right. the greenwashing folks that are like, this is on the back of my instant noodle package that we helped some brown and black people in Brooklyn. It's like, nah. No. It's, real people. It's like take to heart real work. Yeah, absolutely. And as two people who run a small nonprofit, I mean, you're literally looking at the whole nonprofit right now. We're, we're almost outnumbered in this room. <laughs> uh, that sense of real tight community with the people who are just in it elbows deep every day. That's where I find my hope and like the people who are really actively working to make a difference and, and not doing it for public exposure, not doing it for anything other than the fact that it needs to be done. And they've got the skill set to do it and the passion to, to see it through all the tough times because there's more tough times than not in this work, you know? And, and uh, it's just, it's heartening to hear that that is universal. Period. And, you know, I think there's stars in these movements of people who are like, oh, this guy or gal or them, they've figured this out. Yeah, they're in the exact same situation you are. I I can 99% of the time. That's where it is. And it's not what fuels us. Like I had all the commercial success in the world, quite literally. I had zero debt, had everything I ever wanted, plus, plus, plus. Um, Could never even imagine it as nine-year-old me, right? With a paper route and five bucks in my pocket. Like I had the things that I'd been thought I was striving for my whole life. Now in this current iteration, I have less money than I've ever had. And I don't care at all. Like it's not 
I have enough to keep a roof over my head. My companies are very healthy. Everybody gets paid more than a living wage. There's benefits, extended mental, full medical dental. We do a really safe working week. I feel great about it in every venue. And I know I just have today. And I think we get so, so, so caught up that we miss most of our lives. Yeah. And I mean that so sincerely, right? You're, you're chasing, you're looking at tomorrow, you're looking at the next thing in the day. And it's usually focused around fiscal security and longevity because we're taught that. That's how you keep a labor force in check. Right. Um, is keeping them poor and keeping them working. And it's like, if we choose this and you've chosen this, this type of work, I don't have any children, so there's no legacy for me there. It's like we leave behind either the content we're creating today with you or the, the change in people's lives that we create every day. And that's more than enough for me. Like I feel very comfortable with just that. So that's why we gravitate towards each other at conferences like this and sectors like this is we know that the future is going to be very hard and <laughs> the rich still won't be able to eat money. And I can knock on any of my neighbor's doors and they got me. Yeah. Period. And vice versa. So that is your only safety moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. We are incredibly fortunate that in the past year or so, we were able to purchase our first home. And uh, we we moved to Columbus, Georgia, which is uh, historically, it's a mill town. And because it's on the banks of the Chattahoochee River, and it's about as far north on that river as you can get from the ocean. So it was an incredibly important place for textile production for grain milling and everything that you can harness the water to do for you right sure and when those mills shut down in the 70s the largely blue collar town really fell into poverty in a lot of ways and we bought a house in an area that we could afford to live um which is not you know the the nice historic part of town it's in old mill housing in, in those neighborhoods and the sense of community mm -hmm. with the people that live there of just opening up and saying, hey, I live here now. This is what we do. We're, we want to be involved in this community. And I don't want it to be me coming in from the big city of Atlanta and telling you, hey, here's how we do these things. It's like, I just want to know who you are. I want to know what this community is. And I want to know how I can bring my skills to bear on what needs to happen here. And like, I bring all this up to say that what you said with you can knock on any of your neighbor's door and know that they've got you. like. This is one of the first times in my life where I feel that with a greater community that I live in and as a, you know, somebody who has chosen to live in this place and not just moving around from college to job or whatever. Sure. And uh, I just, that sense of community really drives me. And I think sure. that it has been lost in a lot of places throughout the U.S. And I think it's on the rise. And if you're listening right now and you don't know your neighbor, go, go knock on a door, go shake some hands because that's the future is going to be hard and we're going to have each other Period. and that's what's going to make it easier. And you've got ahead of the curve. Essentially like know for a fact that the cities are already emptying out like right here in Ketchum, Ketchum, Idaho. Yeah. On Monday and Sunday, half of the food related businesses were closed with hilarious signs in the window. Not <laughs> funny, but hilarious, right? It's like, sorry guys, we can't open because of the housing crisis and nobody can afford to live here. Literally in a restaurant window, that's a four and a half star Italian. Another place said, open when we're here. Yeah. Like, this is not a one-off story. This is the story. Everywhere. And people are like, the pandemic showed me I want to go buy a home upstate New York. I want to live off the Hudson. I want to be some of the people I know who are working. One woman in particular who is one of the heads of BMP Paribas. Like, she's a Manhattan woman, like, living <laughs> in the penthouse, doing the thing. We're on the plane together. I'm like, how you doing? She's like, I live close to Maine now. You know, we have a fire pit. The neighbors come over and hang out. I'm like, how's BMP? She's like, I have no idea. <laughs> Why would I know? I'm like, amazing. Like, 
the great awakening is here. And I've been screaming from the center of a city where people are literally living in the street that I trust more than the nightclub district because it's a safer place to be. Yeah. And my community looks out for me. Like I say, knock on my neighbor's door. Let me reframe. Most of my neighbors don't have doors. Most of my neighbors don't have a fixed address and they've got me. Yeah. Like if I walked down there tomorrow and was like, we have to build a building. We would be like, cool, where's the mortar and where the brick? And I'm in no way exaggerating. Like we would build a new building together and that is going to be required. And so what you're talking about and where we're at, it's just so critically important. You can't squirrel enough resource away, enough property away when your property is not safe. And we see it consistently, wildfires to flooding to yeah. every other natural disaster. This is not the security that your grandparents told you was going to be the case. And so we're going back to a time of almost indigeneity where we're understanding that the land and the skills to really live with it and live off of it are going to be the ones. And I started my talk today with the single most important skill you can have as a human being is food. Yeah. There is no more. It's not even open for discussion. Like anybody wants to argue it. Just stop. Like you breathe air, you drink water, you eat food. And if you don't, you die. Right. So Very fast. We're fact. so complacent. And I'm talking with one of the wealthiest people in the country, let alone in this area, who's a dear friend. And I said she saw the talk and she was like, okay, well, then I'd be done. I'm like, I've been in your kitchen cooking with you. You can cook. I'm not talking about, you know, <laughs> duck a l'orange here. <laughs> we eat grains and we catch fish and fish is cooked in three minutes. And right. that's... That's it. And the vegetables are done. When you pull them out of the ground, you can cook them if you want, but they're just it. Like that's yeah, it's you're, not going to hurt you. You're done. Like that's it. And it's actually better if you don't. Yeah. And so we have all the tools. Nature is already there doing what it's doing. We've just gotten in the way and deeply, deeply broken the systems. But this stuff excites the heck out of me because I'm like zombie apocalypse. <laughs> right? I've been zombie apocalypse ready. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, you know, if I could just say word for word exactly what you just said to emphasize it a second time, I would. But it was a lot. Run so it I'm back not, if you I'm want to. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Yeah, just, we'll just play it twice on exactly the podcast. Right. I'm just going to cut it right here, and then we're going to play that a second time, and then we'll go with I'm it. I'm with it. <laughs> um, something you mentioned about leaving a legacy really resonated with me, because as we started this business, we one of my big things and one of Chance's big things as well was how can we make the most impact possible while we're here? Cause you know, currently we're in the same place as you. We don't have kids that are like carrying on our bloodline or something. Sure. And maybe at some point in the future, but right now it's like when I am dead and gone, how will I be remembered? Or even if I'm not remembered, how will I've impacted? How will I have made an impact that carries on past me so I can continue making an impact even after I'm gone. So that definitely resonated with me. And I wanted to ask, getting back to um, food waste, it made me think about when I was younger, I was like involved in lots of things. So there were lots of banquets, this and that. You would go to a banquet and there would be lots of food. There would be lots of leftover food. And as a young kid, I was like, oh, well, can they take the food and like give it to the homeless people around or like take it to a homeless shelter? And at least then I know a lot of places couldn't because it was like, oh, well, once it's cooked, like you can't redistribute it kind of thing. Sure. So I'm curious if that's kind of an area that you work in. And also, how do you 
spread your message and get other people working on the same work that you're doing in different states, different parts of the country? Yeah, happy to answer all that. Now, I'll go back to the Oreo cookie, to the good stuff in the center you're talking <laughs> about with legacy. Um, legacy is a fallacy. It's an egoic fallacy. And you see a lot of rich white dudes very concerned about it for a very specific reason, right? Please remember me not as the bad person that I've been, yeah, but as the guy who built the hospital wing with the money I extracted out of the poor workers that I extracted it from. Right. And nobody cares, dude. Nobody, nobody cares at all. And so I think the most important part and the pivot about that is the center part that you described, which is just the impact that you're going to make on others and the impact that you'll never know of. And so just being a genuinely good person, that's all that it takes. And then saying, where am I going to invest my life force, my time in a way that's going to help people? And we got caught in scale. We got caught in like, well, if I'm only feeding one person, that's not enough. Well, to them, it certainly is. I promise yeah. you. I promise that one person really cares that you were able to help so, them. So, so, so much. So in, you know, segueing over into the food waste conversation, or not at all, just hard writing over to it. Uh, during the pandemic, we're feeding folks. We feed people every day. We feed almost 2,000 people every single day. Predominantly women and children fleeing violence. I built an entirely compostable and recyclable container that it goes into. It goes out in an electric bicycle. All of the things are soup to nuts, pun intended, properly done. So we have no impact aside from getting their people nourished. Love it. But at a certain point during the pandemic, we were at, we had started at 900 meals at the beginning of it. And we were at 3,500-ish. So we were maxed out. Yeah. Because everybody else had left the neighborhood because they were terrified of COVID. Particularly with an unhoused population, people were really freaked out. So we were delivering in individual containers and doing the thing. But the need vastly outweighed, even in our neighborhood. We know people at least get one meal a day there. Do they get three? <sighs> you know, tough to say. At that point, nobody was even getting one steady. And so as we were scaling that program up, we ran out of money. We ran out of people who cared. Like ultimately, you know, people are tightening their purse strings. Emails are off. Nobody even knows if they have a job. Right. And so I was like, what to... What resource can I lean into? And the resource I leaned into is the one that I talk about globally, but wasn't doing myself. So I was informing other people about it to speak also to the, the last question you had, informing people all about it from UNGA to the G20 and everywhere else. I'm, I'm in those rooms talking about food waste and poverty and the correlation, but I wasn't doing food waste work in my own kitchen. And I was like, I don't have the bandwidth for this. Well, I made the bandwidth. And we reached out to a grocery store and we partnered with an organization called Food Mesh that created a digital platform to be able to measure all the waste that we would take from the grocery store. And it's a black box competition to a chef. That's just fun. If I come to your house and you know there's cocktails being had and it's late night, you're like, there's nothing in the fridge. And then I come up with a you're plate. You're like, watch me. <laughs> Period. That's the skill. That's the magic trick, right? That's why you learn to do it. Yeah. And so the same thing happens with grocery waste is just, or leftovers, they get delivered every single day to my spot. I hired one young man, Martin, Chef Martin. He was like 26, working in an Italian spot, super fine dining Italian. He's like, I want to do something important with my life. Came over to me and was banging out between 250 and 300 meals, I think, our first day. And then we tapered it down. Now we do consistently 200 plus. We've offset 78,000 kilograms of carbon, recovered 38 tons of food, right? And put out a couple hundred thousand meals out of leftovers. And so we've onboarded three grocery stores, but this is with one person or two people at max in an electric trike. 
there's no other reason. We didn't have a startup. There wasn't a round. There, none of that. Mm-hmm. It was just like, we know how to do this. We should be doing this. So continuing that conversation, if everybody was doing it, what would it look like? I can't say those metrics enough and I can't like bang that drum enough because in all the stuff that we talked at the top of the episode, it's just, it's it. Yeah. Right? If you've got the skill set, you have to use it. And so remove food as the analogy and insert literally anything else that's a resource. How do we harness the resource that's being wasted right. versus trying to create new things all the time? And two things that were talked about today. There's a gentleman who full-blown pitch decked us nuclear power. Wow. <laughs> All <laughs> From right. stage, bless him. You know, like I think every part of the conversation needs to be had. But in an ever-growing natural disaster world, I don't know that we need to be building <laughs> more nuclear power. That's my, I mean, there's a lot of wind and heat out there. I'm just saying those things exist. And then somebody else said today, and again, I'm not saying that I'm right in this conversation. But if we're not going to be – we need to build more electric vehicles to offset gas. I'm like, or rapid transit in density. Right. Like the solution doesn't always have to be sell more stuff. Right. It, it kills me. And this is a whole other conversation. The whole conversation around personal vehicles in the United States, mm. as opposed to how can we move people? I mean, the conversation is like, oh, we can't build a, a rapid transit system. It takes too much space. Really, it takes more space than all of the parking lots that we have, <laughs> all of the parking spaces along every street in a city. Oh. It really takes more space than that because that's what we already have. Right. And it also has these terrible uh, side effects of like traffic and you know all of our carbon emissions. And everybody's sad because they're stuck in their car for two hours a day getting to and from work. And it requires reframing how we think about the problems that we have and not selling more stuff it absolutely comes back to like that's not going to be the solution is creating these new things that make profit for somebody it's about rethinking what is truly the best way to do this not the best way to do this that benefits a single group over everybody else a shareholder yeah like how could that be the design of humanity at this point a shareholder's will yeah like that's it's so insane and you think about my neighborhood where i live All of my businesses were within three blocks. I didn't drive a car more than two or three times in like a five-year span. Wow. Where was I going? Like, (laughs) I live in my neighborhood. I work in my neighborhood. My community's all there. I love it. When I travel, you know, I can jump the light rail out to the airport if I want. And the things that we do or we've gotten just so used to doing is I can afford a house for my family in this suburb. Therefore, I will commute two hours or two hours each way with four hours a day. And in my mind, I was like, oh, what is that? 1,800 hours a year that I'm going to be sitting in tra- – no. That's just a hard no. Like, of yeah. course, I'm not going to waste my life that way. That's insane to me. Yeah, that's definitely easily one of the biggest benefits of us just starting our own business, running it from our couch, mm-hmm. has been that we're not commuting. And I, I don't think I can ever go back. Like, I don't think I could ever, ever live – somewhere distant from where I'm working that I have to physically get to and get home every day. Once you crack it, you never go back. And you travel (laughs) the world and you go to towns. I do a lot of work in rural Italy and other places. No, nobody does that. No, it's it's insanity. Because why would you? No, I've you know an ex girlfriend of mine lived in Los Angeles and she was like, we're going to live in this particular neighborhood and was trying to talk me into living in L.A. I spent like my first week there that wasn't just an engagement going down to cook a dinner and leaving. I was like, I can't. I mean, this relationship might be over (laughs) just based on this commute because this is crazy making. My mental health will fall apart if I have to do this period. Like, 
it's first of all, it's insanely unsafe. Secondly, I can't waste my life this way. So like, yeah, but this is a nice neighborhood. Like this is the trap. Yeah. This is the trap that we're in right now is I believe that this level of consumption has become so normalized that it's okay with me. Definitely the pot is at full boil and we are the frogs. It's it's wild. Yeah, and it's crazy to watch too. Once you step out of it and you look back at it, it's nuts. Um, okay, so I've got two things before we wrap up here. First off, if somebody wanted to learn more about you, what you do, your work, wanted to make a difference with you, where could I send them? What links can I post in the show notes? Yeah, definitely. So my Instagram is the easiest place. It's where I'm most active. My email is where everything goes to die. So it's just <laughs> quite literally. My counsel emailed me there. I'm like, what do you – you know better than this. Like send <laughs> me a note on And that's why I texted what, you to set this yes, up. Yes, <laughs> it, it worked, right? Um, so it's just at mark.brand, B-R-A-N-D. Um, and my website's my name as well, Mark Brand Inc., as in incorporated inc.com um, all my stuff is there and you know if anything's of interest i do reply to the dms as often as i can uh and yeah i'm, I'm around I, I, I stay moving and stay doing the work with people perfect okay so the last question i kind of want to wrap this up on is if somebody that's listening to the show right now is a young chef works in the food industry and wants to take their first steps to going from sort of a conventional kitchen to a kitchen that is intentionally minimizing or repurposing food waste and leftovers. What do some of those first steps look like? Sure. And I think I'll like step back to step forward. Yep. Um, the word chef simply means chief of the kitchen. All right. So it's been – the title itself has become one of the mo most polarizing things about the food and beverage industry. It's like who gets to be called that? What did you have to do? How did you get there? The best cooks and chefs who've captained kitchens I've ever worked with are not classically trained, period. So if you know how to make food and you want to be impactful in the system, buckle up, chef. Let's go. Like, I don't, you don't need anybody's cosign. You don't need anybody else to tell you that's what you're doing. Some of the best restaurants in the world are captained by men, women, and everybody in between that do not do that. So please take that from me anyway as a full endorsement that if you want to be in this food system, it's yours to be in. You're already in it. And not a lot of people want to be in it and for very specific reasons. So the same toxic culture that perpetuates the myths around that word is abusive, misogynistic, largely racist. It's, there's a lot of problems with it. We know all of that. We've seen it on the front pages. If you want to get involved in doing this stuff, find the good orgs. You know, there's, they're everywhere. They really, really are. The work that we do is not in any way unique. They exist in food banks and food pantries and college campuses. They're everywhere. And so dip your toe in the pool before you decide that you want to pivot your whole life and spend 12 hours a day in a kitchen. Um, you know, it is for some people. It's definitely for me. I love it. Like I couldn't think of anything better than processing vegetables and feeding people and watching their face. Like that's for me, but it's not for everybody. And also, the second lens is the Food Network is in no way indicative of anything whatsoever to do with food. <laughs> <laughs> there is nothing going on there that resembles anything that I've ever seen in my 30 plus years. So uh, if you love cooking, if you love food, if you're at home, you're curious, if you just want to like cook soup and hand it out in the corner, do your thing. Don't let anybody tell you any different. Awesome. I do actually want to ask one more question. Please. And I'm here already. <laughs> I'm comfortable. I want to ask... In your opinion, what does food waste in the future, in the next five or 10 years, look like? I mean, my brain always goes into two different stories, right? It's like Blade Runner, Mad Max on one side. It's the <laughs> dystopian future, um, which if 
one side of the aisle in this country gets its way, we're, we're already there. That's, that's the end of it. Like that's how it's going to be. And we will flee to where we can flee. I might come to your mill town. We'll see what happens. Let's do Go it. For right. It, please. The other side of it is these guys all die. Thank God. You know, they empty the <laughs> aisles out. We get the right people who are in leadership and it's mandated. It's no longer a discussion of choice. The supply chains are completely fixed. The taxes are astronomical for things to be shipped and people just get their shit together. <clears throat> Ultimately, they're really just in a place of like, I can't be in New York in February and eat an avocado. I just can't. I just can't have it right now. It's not for me right now. Unless I grew it on my windowsill under my, you know, heater that's on all the time because my landlord only has this way. <laughs> like, that's the only way I'm getting that. And if we stop being greedy and stop being selfish and stop thinking we are allowed to have everything, like most of the rest of the planet, uh, things will be very different. And I, my hope is that it doesn't just have to go that way, that it also comes from pressure from folks like me and our organizations that say there's a better way for you to make more money also and like enjoy being proud of it is what you do. Nobody wants to haul those garbage bags out after service. Nobody wants to actually do that. And considering how many restaurants and chains and conglomerates there are now, if those folks get involved, it's a vastly different story. So this kind of messaging matters. The stages matter. It all matters because the people who are invested in these things too, if they figure out they're burning money, the pressure comes pretty quick. They're going to make a change. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad that we got to meet you. And I'm sure this will not be our last episode with you. I'm here. I'm available. <laughs> I'd be happy to sit with y'all again. Cannot wait to run into you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conservation Connection. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe to make sure you catch every episode that we post. We'd love to hear from you. So if you want to reach out, go to our website, lastchanceendeavors.com backslash contact and shoot us an email. We love questions from our listeners. So if you heard something that you want to know more about, be sure to let us know. If you've got a minute to spare, leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts will help other conservation-minded people find the show. We'd really appreciate it. A big thanks to the people working to protect our planet and a big thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week.